0: There we go. We're good. Um, you know, those things are not easy. You think it's easy to remember when to tell you all to stand and sit. It's not. It really isn't. It isn't. Uh, they even devote a few weeks in one of our classes at seminary for that. And Mark didn't have been to seminary, so God bless him. Well, amen. Church, we are in, um, and I don't know if you fully realize it, but we're in the fourth and the final week of a section in the Gospel of Matthew that is called the Little Commission. Um, It's a place, a lesser commission. I think if I had asked you, what's the Great Commission? We would all know it. It's at the end of Matthew. Go out and make disciples of the nations. But this is a a, a lesser, a little commission in in which uh, the apostles particularly are sent out. Now, later another group would also go, but they're very much led by the apostles, are sent out into Israel. And they are there going to declare the word of God, the word of Christ. there's actually five large sections of teaching in Matthew. We've seen one of them already in the Sermon on the Mount. We're finishing one today in this um, uh, little commission, which is also called the Mission Discourse. And this is actually a thing. I mean, you can actually look it up on Wikipedia. Matthew's divided these five big teaching things. In chapter 13, there's the discourse of the parables. In chapter 18, he's going to give a discourse on the church. And then chapters 23 through 25, the discourse of the end things, how things wrap, how they uh, sort of wrap up. And they all end with some form of when Jesus finished saying these words, he finished saying the parables, these teachings, he got up and he left. He went down the mountain. He went on and did other things. And that's why they're very... um, uh, distinguishable. Jesus has sent out, as we have seen, the 12 to the lost sheep of Israel only. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. That's going to come later. But you go to the lost sheep of Israel. It's Israel's time at the end to come in, at least in the first century. They're given authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. They're to cast out Demons. Again, an itinerant ministry. They're going to go from city to city. They'll receive no wages. They'll remain in a home that they go to. They stay in that home. They don't bounce around. They eat whatever is set before them. But he says you're going out as sheep among wolves. Now, the shepherd, the sheep, and the wolves, things are things we're pretty familiar with. I do know the good shepherd. I do know the sheep. You know, a lot of stained glass windows will have that. We understand the idea. talked a little place about um, those who are ravenous wolves but are clothed like sheep. And I've seen some pictures of that. It's an interesting picture that the good shepherd is sending the sheep in the midst of wolves. But in the end, that is the ministry of Jesus. He is the lamb of God sent to be slaughtered in the midst of wolves. And now the apostles are going to be sent to that. And and in some sense, his people are always in that condition. So he says there's going to be opposition. You're going to suffer some very serious persecution. You will die for this. And as best we can tell, these kind of things didn't really happen in this first mission. In fact, most accounts seem to be when they came back, they really buzzed. They said, this is amazing. Even the demons do what we tell them to do. But when we later look at Acts... And then we look at the letters of Paul and Peter and the other places. All this stuff begins to unfold, particularly in their mission to Israel. But he says you shouldn't be afraid. Christ is going to be with them in the spirit. He'll tell them what to say. They're to fear God and not man. They're to confess Christ before men. If they don't, then Christ will not confess them before the Father. And their message is to be the message of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And although this message is very much tailored to the kingdom and the gospel proclamation to Israel in the first century, it certainly speaks to God and his people always and everywhere, including us today, as we go out to fulfill the Great Commission. And even as the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember that, ended with some concluding admonitions to faithfulness, Stay in the narrow gate, get in the narrow gate, beware of false prophets, you know, don't don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word. Jesus finishes this particular instruction to the apostles with some final exhortations. And you're going to get a sense of strong warning with it, but also there's going to be a hope for a great reward, which brings us to our text this morning. And so, if you will, would you please stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 11, verse 1, and we will pray first. Father, we do ask that we read your word, because it is the word of God, that we know it, and that we believe it, and that we live it, that it convicts us and encourages us, and it pushes us forward in our discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Starting with Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever, receive, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water before he is, uh, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Amen, church. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever. This is the word of our God. Thanks be to God. And then would you please be seated. You know, a lot of things written in the New Testament are written to establish the place of the apostles, particularly the 12 and the apostle Paul, as true representatives of Jesus Christ they're very much like the Old Testament prophets when they speak it's like God spoke you have to listen to the word like you have to listen to the Old Testament prophets word their callings their sufferings and even the rewards are rather unique I think in one place, Paul, Peter says, look, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? And he says, you get all kinds of good things. You're going to get new families and all whatever you're going to get. But in addition to that, you're going to sit on 12 thrones and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But their faith is to be an example to believers for all time, especially to us, as Tyson very well kind of pointed out, the church is wanting to do, we're tempted to want to sit on the sidelines and watch what's going on. And so we all know, Paul talks a little bit about his apostleship in, chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Yeah, we can go ahead and put that up. There you go. Um, for I think, or it says, um, for I think that God... Has exhibited us us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. We are held in honor, but you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed. We 're buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat, we have become and still are, like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. Do not write these thing, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in G- Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, if you can see my screen, uh, not your screen, uh, it's a different. They show it gets real small. It's a big scripture. If you show me just one verse, it's uh, if you turn around, and you saw mine. It's big. And that's what I want to say. I urge you then, be imitators of me. I'm the scum of the world. Be an imitator of me. I'm the refuse of of the world. Be an uh, an imitator of me. And then late in his life, he writes to Timothy, shortly before he's going to die. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And this is the part we all amen to. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Well, amen. So with this in mind, um, we want to approach these final instructions as to be imitators of our Lord. He listened to the apostles to be imitators of them, Um, and we're going to look at that in our text this morning. So the first one is Matthew 10, verse 34. He says, uh, yeah, there we go. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I think this is sort of a summary of everything that's been said Thus far, In this discourse, in these instructions, um, the first 15 verses, verses are he commissions them, he calls them by name, he empowers them. He tells them basically what the plans, the logistics are going to look like. You're going to go here. And then he kind of ends it with, and if they don't listen to you, it would have been better for them um, than Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Sodom and, uh, they're, they're worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah um, for, this, for this judgment. And that's, that's pretty tough. But then starting in verse 16, he just cuts through all. He talks the divisions, the problems. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be taken before kings. You're going to have all kinds of things happen to, uh, happen to you. And as we said, these didn't really happen in their experience in that particular first couple years. But eventually they did. We can see it in the book of Acts and throughout um, the Gospels written. But Jesus is sort of, sort, of, sort of summing up this whole thing so far. He says, don't think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. That little phrase, I have come, is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations for his ministry. You see it everywhere. You don't see I'm trained, I'm called, I'm chosen. He says, I have come. The Son of Man has Come to seek and to save that which is lost. I have come that they might have life, they might have it abundantly. Um, He's speaking before Pilate, for this reason, uh, Carl's, I was born. For this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness of the truth. And Paul says in one place, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners whom he said, I am the foremost. God sent, but the son has come. And it very much points to the preexistence as Jesus is an eternal son. One place he prays to the Father. Father, return the glory that I had, uh, return me to the glory that I had before I came. So he's come into the world from another place. He refers to it one place in John chapter 3. Let's look at John 3:13. He says, um, he's writing to talking to the disciples. He says, no one has ascended into heaven. Interesting, speaking of his future ascension as a past tense. But he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. He says, that's, that's kind of what's happened here. He ascends, he descends, he's come. And when he comes, he brings life, he brings light, he brings salvation. What he does not bring, he says, though, is peace to the earth. Now, he is the prince of peace. And there's certain the Bible speaks very much of the individual soul, all of our souls, who are at war with God and hostility with God. But when we come to him, we are at peace with him. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since I have been, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and that certainly is the testimony of every believer everywhere. It's a cessation of hostility, of war between the individual soul and God. But in one place in the last, when, when, when Jesus is on the night in which he's betrayed and Jesus is talking to the disciples, he says this. He says, my peace I leave with you. He says, I'm giving you my peace. I have spoken these things to you so that in me you might have Peace. But in the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have troubles. You're going to have afflictions. With me, you have peace. We're good. But now, you're going to just as the teacher, you're now going to inherit the tribulation that the world will give you. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So he says, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. And by the way, this phrase, bring. A lot of places, in fact, most places, it's translated cast down or thrown down. It's in Revelation. It's the word that's used all places where it says God casts hail um, and fire to the earth. He throws it down. Um, He's going to cast down the great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan. That's the word. It's used throughout the Gospels pretty much that way, too. Casting something out, casting it down. It's kind of like, I'm not come to cast peace upon the earth. And there's that phrase, I have come. He says, rather, I come to cast a sword. And that would have grabbed their attention because they understood what a sword meant. It's the first mention of this word by Jesus. It's powerful. It's even a terrifying statement. There's a long history of the sword, starting from the Garden of Eden, when an angel stands before the, uh, the, 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 garden in, uh, the, the gate into the garden, keeping people from having access to the tree of life, where they will find peace with God. He stands there with this flaming sword. Everybody knows what that means. And it becomes a major symbol of judgment throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. It's all about warfare and judgment. One place, Isaiah, the prophet says, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. A bunch of that stuff through the prophets. We often think of David's terrible sin, the sin of Bathsheba and um, the murder of Uriah, adultery with Bathsheba, and the murder of Uriah, but he sins in a lot of other places too. And one particular one is he takes a census that he wasn't supposed to take. And God unleashes a terrible judgment upon the nation because of him. He is their federal head. And even as Adam was our federal head in sin, we all become sinners because of him. And Christ, if we're believers, he becomes our federal head and we all become righteous in him. David is a messianic figure and the king of Israel is their federal head. And there's this judgment coming up, pestilence, people are dying. And then at one point, God opens David's eyes to see what's getting ready to happen. It says that David lifted his eyes And he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth and his hand, uh, in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And it was a terrifying picture. And it wasn't that Jesus, he's doing all kinds of things to stop it. And finally he starts acting like a Messiah. He offers himself as a a sacrifice and only then does God relent. But Jesus says, I've come to bring the sword and the sword is coming down. And to illustrate the sword particularly, Jesus chooses to revisit something he had said earlier in the commissioning, the division of the family. So we go to Matthew 10, verses 35 through 37. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me Jesus argument arguing; uh, it's, it's a rhetorical device arguing from the greater to the lesser he's taking this thing that everybody it's, it's it's pretty much universal but particularly in the ancient world and other places it's maybe we don't see it quite as much in the western world but we all know the family is sort of supposed to be the epitome of acceptance and 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 nurturing and and growth And Jesus is sort of arguing from that, and he says, how much more all these other relationships that you're ultimately going to have to deal with? He says, let's go to the most important, the best one. And he doesn't simply say it's going to be tough, as most of us might have experienced in our salvation experience. We might have some issues going on there. But here he says they're going to become your very enemies. He's quoting a text from Micah chapter 7. Basically, there's a terrible time in the nation of Israel. Israel, God says they're fruitless, like Jesus says Israel was of his day. He says the godly have perished. They're not even there. The only thing they really do well is bad things, evil. Everybody perverts justice. The best of them, give me your best men, they're thorns. They're utterly confused. They have no idea what God is doing. And all these things will play themselves out in the Gospel of Matthew. He tells you, don't trust your neighbor. Don't put confidence in your friend. Guard what you say even to the one you hug close at night. A man's enemies are going to be his own household. And yet the interesting thing here is Jesus says, I have come to do this. So he uses the phrase of his coming for salvation. He says that same idea here is I am making this happen. He, Jesus is initiating all. Jesus himself experienced it. At one place, he's, 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 he's just so engrossed in ministry, he's not eating. Finally, they said, you need to come out and, and, and get your son to his family. And they went out to take custody of him because he'd lost his senses think right after that, other people say he loses senses. He's demon-possessed. Well, he'll deal with that. And at one place it says not even his brothers were believing in him. So he had to enter into the same thing. But when Jesus comes, he always confronts the world. Division is ultimately inevitable. It's not just simply, he says, let's go out and take this out. It's just whenever the gospel comes to the world, the world is forced to make decisions about the gospel. Choose you this day whom you will serve. We have people that are giving examples of the apostles. Matthew left his whole business. I don't know how much money he left on the table when he got up and he followed Jesus. A number of the apostles left their family businesses to follow Jesus. Paul says that everything Previous in his world, which he thought I was pretty good at, previous to Christ, he called it rubbish that he might gain Christ. Paul called himself blameless as to the law. In another place, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. How are you blameless and the foremost of sinners? Most well, it's the difference between the kingdom of God and everything else. The message of Christ alone. Is always going to bring division. We get something of the sword and the kind of things that the Word of God, both in flesh in Christ, the incarnate Word, and the inscripted Word that we read and the Word we share in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart think how many times Jesus knew what people were thinking and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account that is the gospel being taken to the world and given to the apostles taken to their world and and then there's a sober warning The one who doesn't ultimately embrace that reality is not worthy of Jesus. Now you have to hear how they're hearing it, because they're saying, He's right there saying, This is going to happen to you guys, and it did happen within the generation. I think sometimes some of this doesn't get transmitted well to our children. When we talk about the difference between what we do in here and what might be out there. And sometimes I think it surprises them a little bit. And yet, Jesus even goes further. Verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so this is the first mention of the word cross. And if you think sword grabbed their attention, this shirt would have. It's not talking about the cross Jesus would one day be a part of. We look back on the cross. This is the first time it's brought up. He's talking just about a well-known phenomena out there, and he's talking just to them. And he identifies his ministry in terms of taking this cross and following him, which seems to point that's what he is ultimately going to do. It says a number of places he's going to die. It doesn't really say... How? There's a lot of ways to die in Palestine in the first century. It was a well-recognized symbol that wherever Rome set up shop, the cross broke people. It's not even the family here so much so using that context. It's bringing the whole issue of Caesar into the world, into the discussion. You know, it's interesting where in the early church, when the church, the gospel, were just going out doing their thing as Christians, they were accused of being haters of mankind. You can hear a whole bunch of interesting echoes in areas in our world today. Um, they were haters of humanity because they were not participants in what humanity was doing. They'd see a man carrying the cross, and maybe simply the cross beam. It might be the full um, straight up. They, might have, they don't always put a cross beam, but he would be carrying. They make the, the, the condemned carry it so everybody could see it, what was happening. And they knew that guy is on a one-way ticket out of this world going to another. And there's no longer any hope to fix this. And he's not going to just die, but he's going to die very shamefully and painfully. The cross is very much at the center of the way we think about things. And certainly, we think of the cross as it bears our sins, how bad we are, on a tree. Peter says that. Paul says that, how bad we are in the church. It's important. I, I preach to you. I want to see Christ in him crucified. What does that look? How you treat one another in your personal holiness. But here it's a little different. Here is the division between Christ and the world. And it could be rather an acute division. I think this is kind of what Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 6. He says, and, he's, and again, the issue here is how Jewish Gentiles have to be and how Jewish he was going to be. And It's not about him doing bad things. It was bad him in circumcision and the, that whole world. He says, but far be it for me to boast except in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. But the great point here is this is not sort of the end. This is the beginning of what we call the good news of the gospel, which becomes this very cross becomes the power of salvation to the one who believes. And so we go to Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 39. Whoever finds his life, he'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And people sort of debate kind of what Jesus is saying on the first part. Some think Jesus, those who find their life by giving themselves to this world are going to lose it. You're going to lose everything, man. One day you're going to die. It's gone. It's left behind. And then ultimately there's judgment. But some think those who find life in Christ will have to lose it. And whoever loses it for my life's sake will find it. So there's a little bit of debate what they're trying to say there. But we get the second part. Whoever loses his life for my sake he will find it. The cross is not just an end to one world. But as every believer knows, it is the glorious beginning of another life. And why is that? And it takes us to verses 40 to 42. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because of his because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever receives one of these little ones, even uh, gives, uh, gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is something of the nature of the call he's going here. But it's this connection that goes all the way through scriptures between God and fallen man. What bridges that gap is Jesus. These men go as prophets and as righteous men. These are both designations that are used again and again in the Old Testament and later in the New Testament Jesus will use them in some of his parables to represent the, the apostles as they go out. The people he sends primarily, the prophets, apostles, and others that he sends to the world. But it was also include all the righteous people of God. But he goes on and calls some, some of them, but he also says these little ones. And again, a favorite designation of Jesus. He often would speak of, he tells his disciples, you're my little flock. Little flock, the Father gladly wants to give you the kingdom of God. You don't have to strive for, we do say, we gotta get the kingdom, he gives it to us. But he also says, they're my disciples. And what his point here is, the disciples are linked inseparably and eternally with Jesus and his mission to seek and save the lost. And that connection between who they are and for their own salvation, who they, they need to remember um, to, to, to um, uh, bear their cross. But they also need to know whoever receives you, they ultimately receive God because they receive me. And that becomes a great encouragement as we go forth and we share the gospel and that we are, that they live the gospel. How people respond to us will ultimately determine or could very well determine their eternal salvation. When it talks about the cup of a cold, I, I, most of the things when it says they receive you means they believe your message. And the, 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 the cold water is just maybe a subset of that, but the point of it isn't to wonder what that reward is going to look like. The point of it is that it magnifies the relationship between God, the son, and The believer that even the smallest thing is ultimately eternal in the eyes of God, which is encouraging. And so Paul says, I go for my reward, and so does everyone who loves his appearing. And Paul would regularly use this principle. He would say, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. I think he even started with that saying, the apostles belong to you. So does everything else. Because you belong to Christ, and he belongs to God. So, church, what is God telling us to this, this day? First of all, something that we don't have to fight on. I think we accept. We are to receive the apostolic testimony. Believe it or not, there was a time in the history of the church when why would we believe these guys? But let's I I've even heard people say this now. They'll say, I like the things Jesus says, but I don't like the things Paul says. You can't separate the two. By the way, everything we know that Jesus says, an apostle is telling us that, or somebody who was very close to the apostle. Mark was probably associated with Peter, Luke with the apostle Paul. And then we have all the letters. So I think that's again when we do this. We, we, we accept the testimony of the apostles. But we also need to realize that these apostles, we are to imitate them because they're fathers and they're tutors to us we to imitate them. If we see these things being done to Jesus and even being done to them, we ought not to be surprised or shocked ultimately at the offense of Christ, however ultimately it comes. So I want to end with a scripture from the apostle Peter. And he is somebody who was surprised some things happened. But in his letter or his epistle, he writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery or trial or ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice and so far as you share the sufferings of Christ. So if it goes as bad as Jesus shares the psalm where you, your family is your very enemy, to the degree of that, he says, rejoice, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of Christ rests upon you. Church, be blessed and let the glory of Christ rest upon you for all eternity. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we see you call men with different gifts and callings. There were some unique men at that time. And yet they were for, to exhibit Christ, what he, what he would look like in believers. We pray, Father. Though we may not all be called to that calling, we are all called to that faith. And we pray that you would strengthen us in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.